Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. Listener discretion is advised. It was the perfect opportunity for a country boy at heart, a job looking over a farm in rural Ohio after the Great Recession. The hired applicants considered themselves lucky. They were finally getting back on their feet. Until they met their boss and the grim, deadly reality of his agenda set in. This is Method and Madness, Episode 18, Richard Beasley, Craigslist Serial Killer. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call from... The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method. And madness. It was November 2011, and 49-year-old Scott Davis lie in the woods, deep in the middle of nowhere of Noble County, in Stock Township, Ohio, bleeding profusely from his arm. It had been seven hours, and he wondered if it was safe to emerge from his hiding place in the underbrush of a dry creek bed. He didn't hear anything but nature. No voices. No footsteps rustling through the leaves. Certainly no more gunshots. It was time. He was sure he'd lost a lot of blood and was afraid he was going to die there. He needed to get to a phone. He didn't have his cell on him, and even if he did, there would be no service out there. Scott stood up and started walking, shaky on his feet. How did we get here? Well, it all started with another man, Ralph Geiger, who also ended up here near these woods. Only he wasn't as lucky as Scott. Ralph didn't get away alive. And next was David Pauly, who ended up just like Ralph. Then Scott, who was the only victim who lived to tell about it. And finally, there was Tim Kern. Three men murdered, one shot and running for his life. Let's dive in. Ralph Geiger, 56 years old, was a homeless man living in a shelter in Akron, Ohio, Originally from Ohio, Ralph had moved to California in the 70s and ended up back in Ohio in the 90s. By then, he had become known as a jack-of-all-trades and was skilled in remodeling homes. But the Great Recession hit in late 2007, the result of the mortgage crisis, which continued to impact people globally for the next two years. With a jobless rate of 10%, people simply couldn't afford to remodel their homes, and Ralph's business was suffering. Ohio was hit hard as a result of the recession and is still recovering to this day from the economic crisis that hit the communities, particularly the manufacturing community, the Black community, and the poor rural communities. Without an income, Ralph was evicted from his apartment in late 2010, a place on Cluster Avenue in Akron, the fifth largest city in the state, with a population of just under 200,000. Ralph was described by friends and acquaintances as a compassionate and caring man who made friends easily. 
and he was determined to turn his life around. He was thrilled when one day in July 2011, a chaplain and his nephew approached Ralph outside the homeless shelter and offered him a job. It was for work down Interstate 77, which runs from South Carolina up to Ohio, on a remote farm owned by the chaplain. It required doing some maintenance and taking care of cattle, and Ralph accepted right there on the spot anything that could get him some cash and get him out of the shelter. By the end of July, Ralph confided in his best friend, Summer Rowley, a woman that he treated like a daughter, that he had found a job and it sounded promising, but there was no cell service out on the farm and she shouldn't expect to hear from him for a few days. On Monday, August 8, 2011, Ralph spoke with his friend Summer one last time. He was about to get picked up by his new employer and was heading down outside of Caldwell to begin his new gig. She never heard from him again and called his phone several times, but it kept going straight to voicemail. Eventually, the phone was turned off altogether. Two months later, 51-year-old David Pauly was living with his brother and his brother's family in Norfolk, Virginia. David was recently divorced two years earlier and had one child. He had worked for more than 20 years at Randolph Bundy as a warehouse manager and truck driver, but was currently unemployed and desperately needed to catch a break. Cruising through Craigslist ads, he found a job opportunity in Ohio that offered him just what he needed, steady pay and free rent. He told his sister, Deborah Bruce, that he found divine intervention. His life was about to get back on track. The Craigslist post read, Wanted. Caretaker for farm. Simply watch over a 688-acre patch of hilly farmland and feed a few cows. You get 300 a week and a nice two-bedroom trailer. Someone older and single preferred, but will consider all. Relocation a must. You must have a clean record and be trustworthy. This is a permanent position. The farm is used mainly as a hunting preserve, is overrun with game, has a stocked three-acre pond, but some beef cattle will be kept. Nearest neighbor is a mile away. The place is secluded and beautiful. It will be a real getaway for the right person. Job of a lifetime. If you are ready to relocate, please contact ASAP. Position will not stay open. David packed all of his belongings into a truck and attached trailer and started the drive to Ohio. He stopped in Parkersburg, Virginia on October 22nd to sleep at the Red Roof Inn and called his sister, telling her that out of more than 100 people who had answered the ad, he had been hired and was on his way to his new job. She could hear the excitement in his voice, but it was the last time that she heard from him, the last time anyone heard from him. Next up was Scott Davis, who had answered an ad on Craigslist on October 9, 2011. It was an ad for a job to be a caretaker of a remote farm in rural Ohio. He spoke with the man who placed the ad, Jack. The first questions Jack asked was how old Scott was, if he had a criminal record, and if he was married. Through several email and phone communications, Jack had described the farm as hilly, secluded, and that he had a large extended family, six brothers and sisters, and tons of nephews and nieces that would run about on weekends. 
Jack asked Scott if he had any carpentry experience and if he'd ever worked with livestock. The interviews went well, and Jack had told him the job was his. Scott was living in South Carolina with his girlfriend, so he was a little hesitant about the move to Ohio. But his mother lived in Akron, and it seemed like fate. He could be close to her, help take her care of her home for her, and he'd have a job that offered him flexibility and a carefree lifestyle. Besides, he was a self-proclaimed country boy, and Jack had told him to bring his Harley-Davidson as there was a ton of rural roads to ride on. It seemed perfect. Scott packed all of his belongings into his trailer, including his Harley, and set out on the road trip to Ohio on Sunday, November 6th. The plan was to meet Jack for breakfast, and Scott pulled into the parking lot of a Shoney's in Marietta on a chilly 36-degree morning. And there, he met his new employer, Jack, a large man of 52, with white facial hair who chatted endlessly. Jack introduced Scott to his nephew, a tall high school kid named Brogan Rafferty. After breakfast, Jack informed Scott that they'd leave his truck and trailer at a nearby parking lot and come back to get it later. The road they were about to travel to get to the farm would have to be repaired before Scott's truck and trailer would be able to make it through, as it had been damaged by a landslide. Scott drove behind Jack and his nephew to the parking lot of Food Center Emporium in Caldwell. There, Scott got into the back seat of Brogan's white Buick LeSabre, with Brogan driving and Jack in the passenger seat, the trio were off to Scott's new home. They drove out of Caldwell, through Rado Ridge, and turned onto Don Warner Road, where the farm was located. During the drive, Jack talked Scott's ear off about how he was a preacher and that he and his nephew attended church frequently. He even went on and on about all his favorite foods. As the road became more and more rural and eventually turned into nothing more than a dirt road, Scott looked at his cell phone, and just as Jack had told him, he had no service. It had been about a 20-minute drive of Scott listening to Jack and looking out the window, watching the rural landscape go by, when Jack told Brogan to pull over and to let him and Scott out where they had, quote, gotten that deer the last time. Brogan stopped the car, and Jack and Scott got out with the intention of picking up some equipment that Jack had stashed there some day earlier. Brogan left the pair there on the dirt road and drove further down to turn the car around. Unknown to Scott, just a short walking distance away was a shallow grave with the decomposed body of Ralph Geiger lying in it, covered in leaves. And just a bit further from Ralph, was another grave holding the body of David Pauley. As Jack and Scott walked down a hill toward a creek, Jack explained that in order to get Scott's truck and trailer to the location, they'd have to use the stashed equipment to do a little road repair. Not exactly what Scott had signed up for, but if it was the only way to get his truck down the road, he'd oblige. Just as they got down to the creek, Jack stopped and started looking around. He seemed lost. He told Scott that he couldn't remember where he had left the equipment and that they should walk back up to the dirt road. That was when Scott made what he later called, quote, one of the biggest mistakes of my life. He turned his back to Jack 
and started walking toward the road, when from behind him, he heard the cock of a gun and Jack muttering the word, fuck. Scott spun around and saw his new boss pointing a gun right at his head. The gun had jammed on the first attempt, and Scott looked into Jack's eyes and saw nothing but black. Something Jack had said earlier replayed in Scott's head, that deer that we caught last time. He had done this before. Jack tried pulling the trigger again, and this time it worked, but Scott had already turned to run, and a bullet hit him right in the elbow. He took off, back up to the road and across it, determined to conceal himself from the maniac behind him who was still shooting. Scott could feel bullets whizzing past him as he ran for his life, stumbling on the uneven ground, falling over and over, blood running down his arm. The sound of bullets seemed endless, his heart pounding out of his chest. Scott was the only man hired for this so-called job that actually came out of it alive. He later described his run through the woods, the immense pain in his arm, how he kept falling down, sure he was a dead man, running from the killer. He described eventually hiding in a dry creek bed, pulling leaves and brush over his body to conceal himself, and how a squirrel almost gave away his hiding spot by making noise in a tree right above him. He listened as in the distance a car drove away, but he wasn't moving, not taking any chances. It was seven hours later, when Scott felt it was safe enough to emerge from the brush and seek out help. His shirt and pants were covered in blood, and he walked, weak, back up to the road and started searching for help, hoping to come across someone who could call 911. He walked for three miles until he came upon a house, but he didn't stop just yet. Something told him to keep on going. The next house he came to, he went up to the door and knocked. It looked like a home where the residents were friendly. A nine-year-old boy answered the door and calmly, Scott explained that he'd been shot and needed the police. The boy summoned his grandmother to the door and she called 911. An ambulance arrived and Scott was transported to Akron General Medical Center where he spent the next five days recovering. There, Akron police arrived to question him just as he was getting out of surgery to remove the bullet from his arm. He told the police what happened, and they listened to Scott's story with skepticism. His account was that some guy named Jack lured him into the woods in an attempt to rob him. Law enforcement thought it sounded far-fetched and made the assumption that Scott Davis had been involved in a drug deal gone wrong. They didn't spend much time looking into the scene on Don Warner Road. And just days after Scott Davis had been shivering, bleeding in the woods and hiding for seven hours, another man, the final man, 47-year-old Timothy Kern, was saying goodbye to his two teenage sons, Zach and Nick, and his ex-wife, Tina, in Massillon, Ohio. As he packed all of his things and prepared to move to a remote farm near Cambridge, Ohio, for a new job he had just been offered, he had posted on Facebook, quote, just got one of the strangest job offers, a good offer, but strange. The job is to watch over 680 acres south of Cambridge. Odd jobs and such, but mainly just secure it. 
trailer, utilities, salary, drawbacks, no cell phone service, kids are up here, and I have to move this Sunday. He had some hesitation, being in the middle of nowhere with no cell phone service, no way to contact his kids, but he knew he needed the work. On November 13th, Tim arrived at a strip mall parking lot outside a pizzeria in Canton, 20 miles south of Akron. It was just after 6 a.m., still dark out, when his employer and employer's nephew pulled in to meet him. As usual, Jack did all the talking that morning. He advised Tim to grab enough clothes to get him by while down at the farm for a few days and asked him how much cash he had on him. Five bucks, Tim responded. Jack's nephew loaded some of Tim's items into the trunk of his Buick, including an old, worthless television set. Tim's car would stay there in the parking lot as it couldn't go over 30 miles an hour and would be useless on a highway. With Jack in the passenger seat, his nephew driving, and Tim in the back, the trio set out for the 90-minute drive to the farm. But after just a few minutes, Jack turned to Tim and said, You know what? I need to go get my watch. I lost it in a field the other day when I was hunting squirrels. Tim agreed, of course, and they arrived at Rolling Acres Mall, a shopping center that was thriving in the 90s, but was now considered dead. Eerie, with faded signage, decaying paint, with only a J.C. Penny still in business, but on its way out. They weren't going anywhere near Don Warner Road this time. It was barely light out when the three men got out of the car and began combing through the thick grass behind the mall. After a few minutes, Tim, his back to Jack, was looking down at the ground for this watch that was so important they had to go looking for it at dawn. As his head was down, Jack aimed his gun and shot Tim from behind. Tim fell to his knees as Jack asked, Are you okay? Jack then shot him four more times, once in between his eyes. Jack's nephew was shocked that Tim was still breathing, still gasping for air as he lay on his back on the ground. A few minutes later, he took his final breath, and Jack and the teen each grabbed a leg and dragged Tim to the freshly dug grave that Brogan had worked on just the day before. It was daylight now, and the two got back into Brogan's car and left, their final victim dead. And it's possible that this would have continued. Men may have continued to go missing while in pursuit of a new job opportunity. But on November 11th, a call had come into the sheriff's office from Boston, Massachusetts. A woman named Deborah Bruce was reporting that her twin brother, David Pauley, had gone to Noble County for a job and that she heard, hadn't heard back from him since October 22nd. After explaining that her brother had answered a Craigslist ad, police realized this was the same story provided by Scott Davis, the surviving victim. The story that police were skeptical about. Now, a missing persons report was filed on David Pauley, and law enforcement went back to Don Warner Road to search the area. Police had learned that Scott Davis had lost a black cap in the woods when he was running, and he tried to direct them verbally on how to find it. It could lead to other clues. Police scoured the area for two days, and they did come across the black cap near a creek, which they used as their starting line. 
Soon, they found an empty grave, which would have been used for Scott Davis. They brought in cadaver dogs to look for David Pauly, and the dogs hit on a specific spot where police began to dig into the dirt. And on November 14th, police discovered the body of David Pauly buried in a shallow grave next to the dirt road. They now had a dead body and a gunshot victim claiming the assault was connected to a Craigslist ad. And David Pauly's sister was saying the same. So the next move was for law enforcement to track the Craigslist ad, which was easy enough. They took Scott Davis's computer and were able to track the communications from Jack using the IP address. It led them first to a local boy, 16-year-old Brogan Rafferty, who had done a lot of the email communications for Jack. Rafferty had no record but did have a troubled family life. His mother, Yvette, was a drug addict who had abandoned him when he was an infant, and Rafferty lived with his father, Michael, who worked long hours and was rarely around to raise his son. The FBI went to Stowe Monroe Falls High School on Graham Road in Stowe, Ohio, to talk to Rafferty, where they brought him down to the main office for questioning. He told law enforcement that he had nothing to do with the shooting of Scott Davis and knew nothing about the dead body found on Don Warner Road. Scott Davis, however, confirmed through a photo that the teen was in fact the, quote, nephew of Jack. This positive identification led to Brogan Rafferty's arrest, which eventually led to a full confession. Brogan Rafferty still had Tim Kern's TV in his trunk when he was questioned about his uncle Jack, who police suspected was actually a man named Richard Beasley, a 52-year-old whose name kept coming up when the locals were questioned. Sure enough, Rafferty confirmed that the farm owner, Jack, wasn't his uncle, but was actually a local named Richard Beasley. Rafferty told police that he and Beasley were close friends, that they met when the teen was 10 years old through his father, Michael. Since Rafferty spent most of his childhood essentially on his own, he saw Beasley as a mentor, a father figure. He had gone along with his mentor four times, helping him dig graves and chauffeuring the victims around. Richard Beasley, who used the alias Jack when he was masquerading as a farm owner online, was 52 years old in 2011. An ex-con who had served a total of 12 years in prison for burglary and illegal firearms possession. He was divorced, and he and his ex-wife Tina had a daughter named Tanya. Beasley was born June 15, 1959 in Washington, D.C., and grew up in Akron, Ohio, raised by his mother and stepfather. In 1985, while living in Texas, Beasley was arrested and charged with 10 counts of burglary and sentenced to 40 years in prison. He served four. In the 90s, he married Tina, and they had their baby girl, Tanya. But before long, Beasley was in prison again for a 1998 federal weapons violation charge, and he served seven years before being paroled. As part of his parole, he was to live with his parents, so he did, and he returned to Ohio where he lived with his mother and stepfather, telling anyone who asked that he was an innocent man and that his time in prison was all a result of a misunderstanding. 
In 2006, a car accident permanently injured Beasley, and he became addicted to prescription painkillers, but he received a decent amount of money from the resulting lawsuit against the driver who caused the accident. With that money, he violated parole by moving out of his parents' house and buying a home. It was then that Beasley started attending church regularly, taking his young friend, Brogan Rafferty, with him. And eventually, he opened his home up to people in need, people who were trying to recover from drug addiction. But soon enough, Beasley began running a prostitution business out of the house. In December 2010, Beasley was arrested for possession of chemicals used in the manufacture of drugs. He posted bond the day after his arrest and was a free man temporarily. Still, he would wave off the charges and say he was innocent. Meanwhile, Texas issued a warrant for his arrest since he had violated his parole. In February 2011, Beasley was to be extradited to Texas, but due to paperwork issues, lack of communication, or some kind of clerical error, nothing happened and he remained a free man in Ohio. Beasley was scheduled to appear in court in September 2011, but had every intention of avoiding that and avoiding more prison time. By the time he no-showed, there was a warrant for his arrest on a fugitive charge, as well as prostitution charges for the business he was running out of his home. It was around this time that Richard Beasley and Brogan Rafferty stopped attending church, and Beasley left his home on Yale Street to evade arrest and was renting a room not too far away in Akron. Upon finding out about the warrant in July 2011, Beasley had approached his daughter Tanya and asked for her help in using the internet. She showed him the basics, including how to post an ad on Craigslist. Beasley had wanted to sell some of his used items, and she was happy to help him, especially if it meant he would make a little money in the process. Little did she know what he was actually planning. Richard Beasley had a very specific mission in mind. Knowing at any moment police would hunt him down, he needed to evade capture. There was no way in hell he was going back to prison. He needed a way out, so he hatched a plan to become someone else. If he could change his identity, he could remain a free man. His diabolical plan was first find someone who's down on their luck, someone that was preferably single and without children. They would have to be around his own age, resemble him somewhat in appearance. It would have to be someone who wouldn't be missed, or better yet, someone that nobody would even notice was missing. The next step would be to lure the perfect man to a remote location, kill him, rob him, and assume his identity. The robbing, the murder, identity theft, that would all be easy for Richard Beasley. The hard part would be figuring out how to find the perfect victim. First to be hired was Ralph Geiger, who was picked up at the homeless shelter by Beasley and Rafferty, but they would need to find others. He, he'd need more than just Ralph's identity. He'd need money, possibly more identities. It seemed that to Richard Beasley, it would be perfect if he could only put out an ad looking for that ideal recruit. But how? You can't exactly write an ad saying you're looking for someone that looks like you so you can assume their identity. Beasley had to get creative. The more he thought about it, he realized he could recruit the ideal candidate through a ruse. 
Police found several drafts of Beasley's Craigslist ad on his computer. It seemed he was working through trying to get it just right. What better way to get exactly the person you want than by coming right out and asking for it? The person had to be aging. Beasley wouldn't be able to pass for a guy in his 20s or 30s. They had to be unattached. His plan wouldn't work if the guy insisted on bringing his wife and kids with him. The candidate would have to be okay with living in the middle of nowhere, which is where Beasley would ultimately take them before killing them, robbing them, and dumping their body in a makeshift grave. So the Craigslist ad was made seeking a man to watch over the imaginary farm on Don Warner Road. And it worked. Richard Beasley preyed on the vulnerable, those that would jump at the chance of a decent-paying gig and a home to go with it. Sure, it was in the middle of nowhere, but that seemed like a small price to pay for someone who desperately needed to get back on their feet. Hundreds of people responded to Beasley's ad. He contacted the ones that seemed to fit the description of what he was looking for. If the applicant was a woman, he didn't bother responding. If you were local, you'd be granted an in-person interview at the Chapel Hill Mall Food Court, where Richard Beasley, a.k.a. Jack, would conduct an interview. He even had an application for you to fill out. During the interview, Beasley would drill down, ensuring that the interviewee was unattached and okay with having no cell phone service on the farm. He fit right into the role of blue-collar, friendly religious type. And if you were hired, he'd make sure that you brought all of your possessions with you. Laptop, electronics, you name it. If you didn't fit the bill of what Beasley was looking for, the interview would abruptly end, as was the case with one applicant, George, who on paper seemed like a good target for Beasley. However, during the interview, George revealed that he was trained in martial arts. Surely that would be a big plus for anyone watching over a property, right? But in a move that puzzled him, his interviewer heard that and stopped the interview in a don't call us, we'll call you fashion. The routine was the same each time. Once hired, Rafferty would drive the men in his Buick. Beasley and the victim would be dropped off on Don Warner Road to quote-unquote look for some equipment. Beasley would walk in front of the victim to, an, to establish trust in a sense. Then he'd pretend to be lost and he'd turn around, which would now place him behind his victim as they walked back to the road. Beasley would then shoot his victim in the back of the head, and they'd be buried in the shallow grave that Rafferty would have had ready earlier. The first man to fall victim to the Craigslist ad was David Pauley, Beasley killing him on Don Warner Road and robbing him of his possessions, his truck, some model trains, Jeff Gordon memorabilia, and he started selling the items at flea markets, telling people he'd been watching Storage Wars, the A&E reality show where storage lockers that go unpaid are auctioned off to professional buyers. Beasley had said that he was interested in making money in the same manner. If it wasn't for the gun jamming, Scott Davis would be the third murder victim, and there would most likely be several more. Beasley had told Rafferty prior to their meeting with Scott that this would be a big score that Scott Davis had a Harley, a flat-screen TV, and other items that would add up to about 30000 enough to get him by for the next six months. But it didn't work out that way, and when Richard Beasley returned to Brogan Rafferty's car that morning, out of breath from chasing Scott, he told the boy that their target got away, and that if he saw him along the road, Rafferty should run him over. 
Tim Kern was the final victim. Brogan Rafferty, during his confession to police, explained that he didn't understand Beasley's reasoning for killing Tim. He hadn't brought the flat-screen TV or laptop he'd owned. He had left those with his children. His car was worthless, but Beasley wanted to scrap it and sell its parts. It seemed that Beasley was getting less and less careful. Even the grave dug for Tim Kern was more shallow than usual, smaller than usual, and the body would be easy to locate. So, police had traced the Craigslist ads and the email communications. They had confirmed from Scott Davis that Brogan Rafferty and Richard Beasley were the suspects, and police confirmed Scott's account further when they were able to get surveillance footage of Scott Davis meeting Beasley and Rafferty for breakfast on the morning of the attempted murder from the Shoney's in Marietta, Ohio. Initially, police had trouble locating Richard Beasley. He had abandoned his home, so they interviewed his daughter, Tanya. During questioning about farmland and whether her father had a place he could hide out at, Tanya started to realize that her father was involved in something pretty sinister, but she didn't know where he was. Eventually, though, the IP address led police to the home in Akron where Beasley was renting the room under the name Ralph Geiger. And on November 16, 2011, police arrested Brogan Rafferty and Richard Beasley. Rafferty was facing attempted murder charges, and for now, Beasley was only facing the prostitution and fugitive charges while the murder case was being built. Six days later, police received a call from the family of Tim Kern reporting him missing. This was when the police decided they should go back to Don Warner Road and do another search. There, they came across a badly decomposed body, but they didn't believe it could possibly be Tim Kern. No, this body had been here for quite some time. It was later identified as victim number one, Ralph Geiger. Law enforcement had a serial killer on their hands. In late November, with the help from Rafferty's confession, police discovered the body of Tim Kern behind Rolling Acres Mall. Brogan Rafferty had made a full confession at this point on tape to police. He talked about his friendship with Richard Beasley, how he was the only steady adult figure in his life, how Beasley had hatched a plan to rob men in order to steal their identities and sell off their possessions, how during the first murder, Rafferty was shocked when Beasley had shot Ralph Geiger in the back of the head. Aside from the confession, there was other evidence to bring to trial. Richard Beasley, aside from being an ex-con and a fugitive, was also a liar. He was not a preacher. Two churches he claimed to be a part of denied his affiliation. People saw him as really no more than a con man. He certainly didn't own any farm in rural Ohio. In fact, the land that he was driving his victims to was actually a beautiful piece of land owned by a coal mining company. The physical evidence and digital footprints all led to Brogan Rafferty and Richard Beasley. Brogan Rafferty's trial began in October 2012, where he was tried as an adult, although due to his age, he was not eligible for the death penalty. He took the stand, and he admitted under oath that he was involved in all three murders, though he tried to say he had no choice. The prosecution argued that Brogan Rafferty was a willing participant. He used his own car during the commission of the crimes, and he dug the graves. It seemed that the only defense that Rafferty's lawyer, John Alexander, had was 
to garner sympathy for his client by reminding the jury of his age and how he had a rough upbringing. Police found a poem on Rafferty's hard drive that he had apparently written shortly after the murder of Ralph Geiger. Here are some of the lines from the writing. We took him out to the woods on a humid summer's night. I walked in front of them. They were going back to the car. I didn't turn around. The loud crack echoed, and I didn't hear the thud. The two of us went back to the car for the shovels. He was still there when we returned. He threw the clothes in a garbage bag, along with the personal items. I dug the hole. It reached my waist when I was in it, maybe four feet wide. We put him in with difficulty. They call them stiffs for a reason. We showered him with lime like a satanic baptism. It was like we were excommunicating him from the world. In November 2012, Brogan Rafferty was convicted of murder, robbery, and kidnapping. In all, it was a total of 24 charges, and he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He's incarcerated at Trumbull Correctional Institution. According to an article by Hannah Rosen in The Atlantic, Rafferty spends a lot of his time reading books from the library and writing letters to his father, apparently showing remorse for his actions. Richard Beasley, the self-proclaimed street preacher, was charged with aggravated robbery, kidnapping, and three counts of aggravated murder, and his case went to trial in 2013. With Rafferty's confessions, prosecution were seeking the death penalty. There were a lot of fingers being pointed, too. The county of Summit in Ohio blamed Texas for letting the parole violation charge get lost under paperwork. The state of Texas was blaming Ohio for releasing Beasley on bail in late 2010. Scott Davis appeared in court as a witness for the prosecution and took the stand. During questioning, he explained about answering the ad on Craigslist, being hired, and moving all of his belongings from South Carolina. He talked about being driven down a road with farmland and a lot of cattle, and how eventually the scenery changed and it became more wooded. About how his employer's nephew dropped him and Jack off on the side of the road. What unfolded when a gun was drawn on him behind his back. During Beasley's trial, he took the stand in his own defense. Speaking of defense, he was claiming that he was the one that was attacked by Scott Davis. Here's an audio clip from his testimony, warning, what you're about to hear is uh, infuriating. You and Scott Davis did what? Scott Davis then uh, pulled out a revolver and pointed it at my head. And I threw my hands up and about urinated in my pants. And I, I just said, why? And he explained why. He said, brother, you're a weak link. Now, tell us what... You have learned in your years of connection with these violent motorcycle gangs what that phrase means. It means he knew I was a rat, an informant. And a weak link is used to describe somebody who either is a snitch or they think is going to snitch. And it's usually used as in you have to take the weak link out of the chain. And that's pretty well known among anybody familiar with that environment. Now, in fact, is that true? Were you a... I sure was. Let me finish now. Go ahead. Were you a weak link or a snitch? Yes, I was. And tell me about that. Was that here in Akron or someplace else? That was here in Akron. And who were you dealing with here in Akron? 
Initially, I dealt with uh, Officer Alan Jones, who was on the street narcotics squad. But I had bought him information on multiple times involving uh, motorcycle gangs. So he hooked me up with Lieutenant Keith Meadows of the Akron Police Department, who was the gang officer who specifically dealt with motorcycle gangs. After he said you were a weak link brother. Yes. While pointing his gun at you, what happened? It misfired three times, about two feet from my face. And I ran in the woods, and he ran after me. I fell. I, I'm just not in a condition to run. He got on top of me. We were wrestling over the gun. It misfired, then it fired, then it misfired. So one time out of six times, and it, at a glance, I would say it was an old gun. It was pitted. That's all I can remember, and it was a revolver. And he had his six shots, and he yelled when it went off, and when it went off, it went bang quick. In other words, he was continually pulling the trigger. So he yelled, and I pushed him away, and he just kind of pushed away, and I said, that's your six. So if he was going to kill me, he had to do it with his hands. Did you know whether or not he was apparently struck with one of the bullets? In April 2013, Richard Beasley was convicted and sentenced to death. To this day, he maintains his innocence while incarcerated at Chillicothe Correctional Institution. Journalist Devin Friedman visited Richard Beasley in prison for an article in GQ. There, Beasley told tales of how Ralph Geiger was killed by meth dealers because he had come across their lab and they needed to silence him. How Brogan Rafferty was the person who killed Tim Kern. He's never taken responsibility for anything. Richard Beasley's daughter was quoted in an article by True Crime Daily saying, quote, I blamed myself for everything that happened because if I would have known he was using the Internet to do these things, I wouldn't have shown him when he asked me about it. Scott Davis gave a victim impact statement during Richard Beasley's sentencing, standing a few feet behind the convicted murderer who sat with his head down, dressed in orange and white striped prison garb. Scott thanked the court and spoke of his love for the victim's families that he had met along his journey. He thanked the jury and praised God for sparing his life on November 6, 2011. He then spoke directly to Richard Beasley, saying that he was in pain 24-7 and had a permanent plate in his arm. He talked about lying in the woods for seven hours, freezing from blood loss, not knowing if he would survive, but praying, and telling himself that he could do this. He prayed to God, and a warm feeling came over him, and he knew it was God saying, quote, I got you. He went on to call Richard Beasley a liar, a thief, a murderer, a wolf in sheep's clothing, and a worthless monster. I think that pretty much sums it up. Today, Scott is doing well and just wants to move on with his life. Richard Beasley is a ruthless murderer, a serial killer who was seeking gain, a man that was driven to survive by any means necessary with no regard for human life only caring for the preservation of his own. So his mother, Carol, a Christian woman, testified in court that her son had a hard childhood, abused by his stepfather, who was described as a, quote, mean drunk. 
She described how her son was sexually abused by local kids while he himself was just a child. And psychologist John Fabian also testified, explaining on the stand that Beasley was a man suffering from depression, alcohol abuse, and low self-esteem, possibly as a result of his abusive childhood. So why am I telling you this? Well, these testimonies were given in hopes that the jury, the judge, would spare Richard Beasley the death penalty, but leniency was not in the cards. So now we go to sort of the motivations and the why behind the crime. While an abusive childhood can certainly have long-lasting, long-term negative effects on your mental health and your quality of life, it certainly doesn't lead to becoming a serial killer, well, not usually anyway. Serial murder makes up less than 1% of murders in the U.S., with the average rate of homicide annually hovering around 15,000. And when you examine the murders by Richard Beasley, you see a classic game killer, a man that would do absolutely anything to benefit himself. His motive was self-preservation. There was no sexual aspect to his crimes. In fact, Beasley told journalist Devin Friedman that after his car accident in 2006, he was unable to have sex due to a heavy metal mug being in his lap when the accident occurred. There was no apparent thrill to his murders. He wasn't getting a high from the planning or the execution of the kills. He didn't even have a cooling-off period after shooting Scott Davis. He just saw that as a failure and immediately targeted and killed Tim Kern, knowing that when Tim got into Brogan Rafferty's car, that he would get little to no benefit. There was nothing financial to gain. But it didn't seem to matter much. Richard Beasley was cold, a man who hid behind a false curtain of religion, who groomed a child to help him, who sought out men who were experiencing the lowest of lows during a historically difficult time in the U.S. And while many gain killers are seeking a lavish lifestyle, trying to live life above their means, Richard Beasley really wasn't that different. He may not have been aiming for luxury cars or fancy vacations, but he was doing whatever he could to be someone he was not. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so if you like it, go ahead and leave a five-star review. It really does help. You can find me on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. If you have suggestions for future episodes or you just want to say hi, please email me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.